reading uh, this morning is from John chapter 11, starting at verse 17, and can be found on page 1078 of the Church Bible. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20, 25, and 50 to 58. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for your word, which is living and active 
and speaks to us today. And I just ask that every single one of us here this morning would hear your voice speaking into our individual situations. And Lord, help us to be ready to receive what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title for today's talk is Christ's Victory Over Death. So could you just turn back to John chapter 11 um, on page uh, 1078? And if you want to follow my four points, they're typed tight in the back of the bulletin sheet so you can see my four headings there. This is not going to be a gloomy talk, so I hope you won't feel that it is, despite the title. Because the whole point of this is that Christ has done something amazing about death. But for many, death is the great unmentionable. We dress it up with wreaths of flowers. We try to make it acceptable by the way we talk about it, passing on, being free from suffering. Yet everyone who has lost someone close, and I guess that includes many, if not all of us here today, everyone knows death is not, as a poem says, nothing at all. And many fear death. The Bible recognizes that fear. In Hebrews 2, we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. If you have that fear, and I have in the past, it's with you all the time. It is indeed like a slavery. You wake up on a lovely sunny day like today, and you think, what is it? And then the cloud comes over you. At last thing at night, you're afraid to go to sleep in case you die in your sleep. Now, there are, of course, those who profess to have no fear at all. The late um, philosopher Bertrand Russell said this, I believe that when I die, I shall rot and nothing of my ego will survive. I am not young and I love life, but I should scorn to shiver with terror at the thought of annihilation. He was wrong. He was very wrong about annihilation. Death can be unexpected. Um, and perhaps all of us know of people who've died very suddenly. It's got nothing to do with age, either through accident or illness. And so it's perhaps no wonder that the litany in the Book of Common Prayer, which I confess I was not brought up on, has these words. From battle and murder and from sudden death, good Lord, deliver us. Now, there can be some humour around this topic. The Daily Telegraph reported some years ago that a reader had received a letter from America about the death of an elderly acquaintance. The dead lady had left clear instructions for her burial. I do not want any male pallbearers, she declared. They didn't take me out when I was living, and they're not going to take me out now. As, um, as we've said already, today we come to the last of our series on the abundant life from John chapter 10 and 11. And you may be saying, what on earth has death got to do with an abundant life, with life at its best? Well, a Christian can say that because God in Christ has conquered death and we who are in Christ will too share in that victory. And to know that the last enemy, as Paul calls it, has been conquered, means that we can live this life to the full, for we know that the best is yet to be. 
So as we turn to today's passage in John chapter 11, um, you might remember that we heard in Charles's sermon last week that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were close friends of Jesus. And we saw last week how Lazarus fell ill, so Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. And as Charles said, there's this inexplicable delay from Jesus. He delayed for two days, and in that time, Lazarus died. And that's where we are today, as we come to it. But at, we saw last week, that Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Because Jesus was going to do something so incredible that it would help them believe like nothing else could. So here's my first point, comfort in bereavement, comfort in bereavement. And if you would just cast your eyes down verses 17 to 35, the portion that Paul read. Jesus duly arrived in Bethany, and we're told at this point in verse 17 um, that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now that time is, is significant because in those days many believed that the soul hung around the body for three days in the hope of returning to it. This would coincide with the first three days of heavy mourning. So by the time Jesus arrived, it would be absolutely clear in the people's minds, beyond any doubt, that Lazarus was dead and no one could do anything about it. Picture the scene. Look at verse 20. Martha runs out to meet Jesus while Mary stays at home. This is so much in character, those of us who know about Mary and Martha. Martha, impulsive, earnest, rushes on ahead, leaving the quieter Mary behind. And she blurts it all out. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died, verse 21. How many times are those words uttered when someone dies? That if word, especially when it's a sudden death. If only we'd not had that argument. If only we'd said goodbye properly. If only I'd said, I love you. But Martha does have some faith in Jesus because in verse 22, you can see, she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And in reply, she has from Jesus some of the most glorious words he ever spoke. She doesn't get it at first. She thinks Jesus is talking about the resurrection on the last day. But no, look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? But Martha doesn't quite get it. She sidesteps the question about never dying. Instead, she declares that she believes Jesus is the Messiah, verse 27, which in itself is a huge declaration. And then comes Mary. Jesus has had to send for her. And she says more or less the same words as Martha did. Lord, if you'd been here. But look what happens next. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, that was all the mourners, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The words deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Here and in verse 38, translate the Greek word. Now, I'm no Greek scholar. I hope I pronounce it right. Embrimasthai, that Greek word. And it indicates the snorting of a horse or in human beings, an outburst of anger. Jesus is angry at what death does to people. He's angry at the pain it causes. 
When I first came across that thought some years ago, but Jesus being angry at death, it was so helpful. What a comfort it is to know that when Jesus sees our grief at the pain of death, he too is angry. But more than that, as we will see in a moment, he acted. He did something that would take the sting out of death and ultimately defeat it. Look how he comforts Mary and Martha. What a lesson this is for us in helping those who are bereaved. Never once does he reproach them for their reproach to him. He can take it. If you're bereaved and you're angry with God, you can tell him. See how he speaks to each woman. He gets them to verbalize how they're thinking. He makes Mary come out to speak to him, even when she might have preferred to hide away and avoid people. And he weeps with them. When we are bereaved, Jesus weeps with us. And finally, he points them to the glorious truth, which they can only half imagine, that he has the power to raise people from the dead. More than that, he gives those who believe in him life beyond death. And he asks you and me, as he asked Martha, do you, do I, believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That whoever lives and believes in him will never die? He's talking about that second lifeline I spoke about two Sundays ago, the line that goes on into eternity beyond our physical lifeline. Do we truly believe that? I learned a lot about comfort and bereavement when my father died. I was 19, the eldest of four children. I was at St. Andrews University, and I got a phone call late one night when I got back from the library. My father was in hospital in Belfast, very seriously ill, and I had to come home. He died 10 days later without regaining consciousness. No one told us that the last sense to go is the hearing what things I might have said. But the good shepherd was there in the valley of the shadow of death in that awful time between my father falling ill and dying. As the taxi rushed me to Glasgow Airport, I can still see it to this day. I remember being struck by the beauty of the Scottish countryside on an autumn morning. God was distracting me by pointing to his creation. Back in Belfast, our minister visited us with his wife. He prayed for us, me, my brothers and sister and my mother. And when I looked up, his wife was weeping. She wept as Jesus did. That meant more than I can say. A close friend of the family gave us a Labrador puppy. I cannot think of anything better to give four grieving teenagers than that. But it was not all good. An older friend of the family, much older lady, told me never to wear my heart on my sleeve. As the eldest child, I took that very seriously. I had to hide my emotions. So I did. And six months later, when I was spending a term at Salamanca University, it all came out in nightmares and weepiness. It was like a delayed reaction. Many years on, I've learned a better way. Shortly after my mother died, I took myself into a room on my own and spent about two hours just crying before God. I could feel the healing power of those tears, almost physically, coursing through my body. Because, you see, the body grieves as much as the mind does. I've learned, too, that we all grieve differently. There is no right or wrong way. When Charles's parents died, he didn't want to talk about it. 
When my mother died, I wanted to talk about it all the time. Indeed, it was about a year before I didn't want her name to come up in conversation because somehow I felt that if I didn't talk about her, I would lose her. Those of you who've lost someone very close will know what was helpful and what was not. Words are often superfluous. A wordless hug is what is needed. What is the supreme comfort that Jesus brings in bereavement? Well, it's his presence with us, as we all know from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. His presence. And remember that the shadow of death goes on after the death as we mourn. Then there is his victory over death. The fact that, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we need not grieve like those who have no hope. But this is not triumphalism. Yes, we grieve. We're not going around with plastic grins on our faces. Yes, we weep. But there will be an end to the weeping, an end to all that pain. So let's now look secondly at my next point, and you'll be pleased to hear that the next two points, three points are much shorter. Christ's power over death. Look again at verse 38. Jesus is again deeply moved, indeed angered, as he comes to the tomb. He tells them to take away the stone, which would have been very heavy. It would have taken two or three men to move it. And once again, the impetuous Martha speaks. She's concerned about the odor. Once again, he deals gently with her, reminding her what he's just said about seeing the glory of God. He prays to the Father, wanting the people to believe, verse 42, that God sent him. For what he is about to do will point almost conclusively to his divinity. Then there is the moment of drama. Look at verse 44. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It is a moment of drama, but Jesus says it almost with a word. He has demonstrated that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Death is no barrier for him. And later he too will rise, showing, as the Bible says, that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And now we come to the third point. Life after death, not over death, as it says on the bulletin sheet, my typo. And for this, would you turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, please? We'll just look at these few verses here. On page 1156. People often say that we know very little about life after death. But in reality, the Bible tells us quite a lot. In Hebrews 9.27, we read that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There is no such thing as purgatory. That judgment is about what we have done with Christ. Have we accepted him or not? And remember that God is the most just judge. And if there's anyone here today who's not yet committed their life to the risen Christ, who's not yet acknowledged that when Jesus died on the cross, as we will remember at Holy Communion, he was bearing your sin as well as mine and the sin of the whole world, I urge you to do that today without delay. Not to do so and then die 
means spending eternity without God. None of us knows, none of us knows the day we will die. Now, in this wonderful chapter, we learn a lot about life after death. We read that at the end of time, Christ will destroy all powers and dominions ranged against God. And the last enemy, verse 26, that will be destroyed is death. We read, too, in the rest of this chapter, that we will be given new resurrection bodies no longer subject to decay. They will be perfect. So Johnny, that inspirational Christian, she's a woman who happens to have a name spelt J-O-N-I, an inspirational Christian married to a lovely man, she has spent the major part of her life in a wheelchair. And she writes remarkably, millions have been helped by her books, she writes about looking forward to a time when she will be no longer in a wheelchair, she will have a new body, and she will walk and leap and dance. That is what is ahead after this life. Please don't listen to that Eastern stuff which talks about being merged into the one great consciousness. That is not Christianity. In Christianity, you die, you're given a new body, but you retain your individuality. It's very important to know that. And we read in in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Christ comes again at the end of time, the dead will be raised imperishable and death, verse 54, will be swallowed up in victory. The sting of death has been removed. For sin has been dealt with through Christ's death on the cross, and the death that comes with sin will be no more. So even now, as we look forward to that, we can say with Paul in verse 57, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just Christ's victory over death. We too, all of us, all of us can share in that victory. And there's something else the Bible tells us about life after death. At the beginning of John 14, we won't look it up, Jesus says he's going to heaven to prepare a place for his disciples in his father's house. And he'll come back and take them to be with him. To die is to go to sleep and to wake up at home in a place made ready for you by Jesus. As a Christian, your true home is no longer in this world. That's why you can feel a bit odd. You're going to the office or you're at a dinner party and it emerges that you're a Christian and people make you feel very uncomfortable. Yes, and it's right that because our home is no longer here. It's somewhere else. One of my favorite films is E.T. Um, it's quite old now, actually. But it's about that funny little figure of fiction who comes to Earth And I don't know if you remember in the story, he's really keen to get back to where he came from. And he says, home, home. Well, you know, Christians have that same longing to go home and be with Jesus. David Watson was a wonderful evangelist. Um, He died at the age of 50. and, And some of you here may remember him, but many of you will not. His name was known throughout the UK and abroad. And he preached his last sermon in that pulpit. Ten days before he died. And his last words to his wife, Anne, were, I'm tired, let's go home. A small boy who knew he was dying asked his mother what death would be like. She said, well, you know, sometimes when we're going out for dinner with friends, we take you out of your own bed so you can sleep at the friend's house. Then after dinner, we take you back. And when you wake up in the morning, you're in your own bed at home. That's what it would be like to die the mother said to him and golly how hard it must have been for her to talk to him that's what it'd be like to die going to sleep here and then waking up in heaven at home 
So fourthly, what does all this mean for us, for those who've committed their lives to Christ? Well, it removes the fear of death when we understand what Jesus has done. We can look forward to being with Jesus. We can look forward to an end to our battle with sin, you know, constantly feeling we're failing God and not getting it right. And unlike many, we will not be in denial. We will get our house, both literal and metaphorical, in order. And as a retired lawyer, can I urge you, please, to make a will. If you haven't done so, you may feel you've got nothing to leave, but please make a will. Uh, It leaves such difficulty if you don't. So we'll get our literal and metaphorical house in order. We will try to say what we want to say to those we love and to those who've helped us in life. We will try to mend any relationships that are not right, where people have hurt us or spoken about us against, against us. Romans 12:18 says, As far as it depends on you, mend relationships. It won't always be possible. And we can speak to others about death, so they too are released from that slavery. And we will finish as God calls us to. At the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, having learned all we have about the life to come, we read this. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We are called to live fruitful, effective lives right to the very end. I want to finish with a story about a dinner party. I think some of you may have heard me talk about it before, but not many. Well, um, a hostess had prepared for weeks and weeks about a very special dinner party. And it really, the guests were either business people and their wives um, and spouses or lawyers. And the dinner was going terribly well. It was going swimmingly well. The food was fine. Everything, the wine was appreciated. And then towards the end of the pudding course, one of the businessmen got very heated. He'd been involved in litigation, and it had not gone well. And the more he talked about it, the more he raised his voice, the more angry he got. And at the end of it, he said, and you know who got all the money? The lawyers. And of course, the hostess was exceedingly embarrassed because half the guests there were lawyers or their wives or spouses. There was a dreadful silence until the wife of one of the lawyers spoke up. Oh, she said, I love a story with a happy ending. Christ has conquered death. He has called us to himself. He has called us to the happiest ending imaginable. Let's make sure that when death comes to us, we are ready. And let's do what we can to share that with others. As someone I know likes to say, I'm on my way to heaven and I want to take as many people with me as I can. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you so much that you, who are the Lord of history and of time, made this amazing plan that death would be and could be defeated. And we thank you today for that. Lord, help all of us here to take this so seriously and to rejoice in what Christ has done in our place. And I pray for those of us who don't yet know Jesus, Lord, that you would speak to them too. And they too would share in that amazing victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we um, take communion, we're going to do something that we haven't done for a bit, but we've often done at St. Michael's in the past. If you would like to...